Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. Quantitative easing, called QE, which is the policy embarked upon by the world's central banks after the 2008 financial crisis, is controversial. QE involves large-scale purchases of bonds by the central bank. It hands liquidity to the previous owners of those bonds, who are then supposed to use the cash to support economic growth. Central bankers defend QE and say that without it, we would have had an economic slump. But critics say QE has led to a widening gap between rich and poor. This is because QE causes inflation in asset prices like shares and property, while wages remain largely stagnant. And of course, that helps primarily the well-off in society. To put things in perspective, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, grew by a factor of five between 2008 and 2019 as a result of QE. Now the Fed said in 2017 it was going to stop the policy and start shrinking its holdings of bonds. But late in 2019 things changed abruptly. From August last year onwards the US central bank started to grow its balance sheet rapidly again and inject more liquidity. In fact according to Michael Howell who is my guest on this episode of the New Money Review podcast, in 2019 as a whole the Fed provided the biggest liquidity injection to the US financial markets ever. What's going on? Michael is uniquely placed to shed light on global liquidity conditions, on why the Fed decided to intervene last year and on what might happen next. Before setting up his current advisory firm, Cross Border Capital, in 1996, Michael worked as a research director at Salomon Brothers the most important bond trading firm in the world during the 1980s and 1990s. So you recently wrote in an article in the Financial Times, the Fed is the cause of the bubble in in everything. Uh, When did financial markets become so dependent on central bank interventions? Well, I think they've always been dependent on central bank interventions. They've always been dependent on money and central banks create money. So in in that regard, it's always been the case. I think that... uh, the role of liquidity, if you like, in terms of driving asset markets is something which moves in waves or fads. So, you know, if we'd have been having this discussion in the 1980s, late 1980s, uh, it would have been about very similar topics. Um, as the 1990s unfolded, uh, although liquidity is important, people started to look at other things such as technology. And um, then for the last 10 years, it's been sort of people have been focused a lot more on debt, I suppose. But central banks have always been in the background and their role is critical. Uh, I'm old enough to, that, that strikes a call with me because I'm old enough to remember when people looked at the M3 money supply or M4 money supply in, in the UK and uh, the equivalents in the US and were, were worried very much if it grew outside its range. That was during the I think early to mid nineteen eighties. So you're suggesting this is liquidity has come back into, or is well, coming back into fashion? Yes, I think that I think one without getting too hung up about sort of monetary definitions. I mean the uh, the difference between what we do and maybe the more conventional stuff is that uh, that money is really the uh, the the traditional money is the domain of banks or high street banks, and the world has moved on a lot in the last twenty five years from uh, a world driven by high street banks to a world now driven much more by credit markets and by wholesale money markets. And uh, a lot of the problems that we have in the world economy and a lot of the reason that it's become very difficult to understand is that much of it is, or much of the movements are going on behind the scenes. And it's very difficult to understand the role that banks, traditional banks play. And in fact, they play an, 
an increasingly smaller role in the world, and its uh, money creation and credit creation is much more in the domain now of uh, markets such as the repo markets, uh, the wholesale money markets, etc., the euro dollar markets. These are really critical in terms of driving liquidity flows. So for cross-border capital, you publish research showing liquidity conditions across the global markets. How do you measure liquidity? At a very basic level, we measure liquidity by looking at the total amount of savings plus the total amount of new credit that's created. Um, it's, uh, th- those are the, the two main sources. If we drill down and get a little bit more specific, what we're doing is we're looking at provision by central banks, uh, in other words, how much they can expand their balance sheets. The second thing is to look at what the private sector, the domestic private sector is doing. So that's looking at things like uh, traditional bank credit, uh, but also shadow bank credit, the role that wholesale money markets play in this equation of uh, of creating credit. Uh, And then thirdly, looking at cross-border flows. So that's the impact that, say, the euro dollar markets will have on domestic liquidity conditions. And in your January 2020 report, you've pointed out that liquidity in the US has expanded its perhaps the, the fastest rates ever, if I'm understanding. Yes, correctly. I mean, if you, if you standardise the data, I mean, that, that's a, it's, it was sort of purposely put as a very melodramatic headline. But if you normalise the data or standardise the data, and you look at it on a 12-month basis, the US has actually seen or saw in 2019 the biggest uh, annual increase in liquidity that it's ever seen. Uh, now, as I say, that was a slightly concocted figure in the sense that there was a big base effect there because a year ago, the Federal Reserve was actually tightening policy. It was doing a quantitative tightening exercise and it very quickly flipped uh, around the middle of the year to a quantitative easing. So on a year-on-year comparison, uh, absolutely correct, it was the biggest increase ever. If you look at it probably more accurately on a six-month basis, the Federal Reserve did increase liquidity by a lot. Uh, it wasn't quite as big as the reaction to the 9-11 terrorist attack uh, when US markets froze, nor the, the global financial crisis in 2008, but it basically paced them. It was up there. It was the third biggest ever. Well, you mentioned that your measure of liquidity includes a number of um, components, including central bank liquidity and the liquidity of different actors in the money markets. But from what, from what I understand, the central banks are playing an increasingly pivotal role in supporting global liquidity conditions and balance sheets have expanded by several, by a factor of four or five, I think, since the financial crisis. So what, is this something we're just going to have to continue to live with? Is there any exit strategy or are, we, are the money markets wholly dependent on central bank support? Yes, I think the, I mean, the answer is that in the world that we're in at the moment, they're, they're very dependent on central banks. And the, uh, the reason that that's the case is that um, the, the whole mechanism of credit creation really uh, rests to a very large extent now on repo markets, uh, which are sort of, let's say, um, for want of a better description, wholesale money markets that are based on collateralized borrowing. Uh, and the central banks play a very close role in uh, maintaining the sort of the, the, the liquidity within those markets. And they've done that in particular uh, since the global financial crisis. And so the mechanism of credit creation is now very dependent on what the central banks do. Now to sort of put this in, a, in uh, maybe a, a more straightforward way, if you look at the financial system today, the financial system is not about raising new money for new capital expenditure, which is what the textbooks tell us uh, financial markets do. It's much more about rolling over existing debts, 
It's all about refinancing. And in order to refinance uh, our whopping debt burdens, what you need is a large balance sheet capacity. And the central banks effectively determine that for the financial system. So if the central bank balance sheet itself is bigger, then the financial system's balance sheet is bigger, and the capacity of capital is therefore around to actually roll debt over. So our point is that all this fixation we're looking at interest rates, which is the cost of capital, is dominated by another factor, which is the capacity of capital, which is effectively balance sheet size. And that's really what's the important element. So the quantitative size of central bank balance sheets and otherwise quantitative easing is, is critical. So the repo markets have been in the headlines recently with jumps in interest rates in for collateralized finance, for repo finance, uh, ca- catching a lot of attention in the closing months of the year. What do you think caused that uh, in the repo markets? Well, the, the, the reason there was a problem in the repo markets, and this is primarily a US phenomenon because the US repo markets are much bigger and they also encompass uh, activity in the euro dollar markets. And what you basically have is, is um, really one bank or one and a half banks, in other words, JP Morgan and Citibank, which are really the, the, the major players in these markets. And what they require is liquidity. And the liquidity is provided by the Federal Reserve. Now, the, the problem came, um, well, it came to a head last year, but it was really sort of bubbling around uh, in the previous one or two years before that, because the Federal Reserve had basically decided that they wanted to renormalize their balance sheet. And another way to think about that is that what they were trying to do is to take reserves away from the banking system, in other words, to reduce what had become a, a very large pool of reserves among banks. Now, what they failed to take into account was that because of the activities in the repo and euro dollar markets, the concentration of reserve holding in America was very much in the hands of these two banks, Citibank and JP Morgan. And as they started to drain reserves from the system, what you saw was a disproportionate drop in reserves at those two banks. And therefore, they became compromised in their uh, ability to run these very important markets, the repo and euro dollar markets. And consequently, you saw repo problems. Now, since that date, the Federal Reserve has reassessed um, its estimates of what is the necessary level of of, uh, bank reserves in the US system. Um, About three or four years ago, they thought it was as low as 300 billion. Uh, About a year ago, they'd upped that to about a trillion dollars, and their latest estimates are probably nearer one and a half trillion dollars. Now, given the fact that they they believe that on top of that, you need a margin of error where perhaps uh, or a safety margin of maybe four to five hundred billion, that would suggest that the level of bank reserves in America probably need to be targeted at around two trillion dollars, which to my mind means that the overall Federal Reserve balance sheet, since reserves are only one component of that, probably itself has to grow to about five trillion dollars. So the, the, you mentioned the pivot of all of JP Morgan and City in their repo markets. Um, they, it, it, from an outsider's perspective, it seems that when, when those liquidity conditions tightened, they were able to go to the Fed and request assistance, which came in the form of a, I think you, you, you wrote that it's $400 billion of uh, increase in the Fed balance sheet, or about a 10% increase. 
So th those banks seem to be in a position where they, they, they can basically tell the Fed what they need and the Fed has to comply. Is that a, a fair reading of the situation? Yeah, I, think pretty, I think pretty fair. I think the, you know, what, what's changed a lot um, in the last 10 years is the decision to provide assistance and uh, if you extend that internationally, the ability or willingness of the Federal Reserve or the US system to actually provide swaps, dollar swaps, to international um, central banks uh, has diminished enormously. And whereas that was, I suppose it's fair to say, almost an automatic exercise back in 2007, 2008, and as we know, European banks were very big borrowers from the Fed at that stage, it's now much more a political decision. And one of the things, one of the results of the Dodd-Frank Act in America is that that, uh, that decision by the Federal Reserve to lend through swaps is now become a political decision where it has to be signed off by the president. Uh, and therefore what you've got is uh, the ability of the US to be, to be uh, if you like, world banker of the last resort uh, rests on who sits in the White House. And uh, you, you pointed out that we're basically in a new round of quantitative easing. How uh, connected is this to the forthcoming US presidential campaign? Who will know? Um, uh, I wouldn't like to speculate, but uh, it is it is a very neat coincidence, put it that way. Where are the where are the vulnerabilities in the current system? If if is it do they lie with the asset managers and hedge funds and pools of corporate cash that are increasingly the providers of liquidity to the repo market, or is it is it somewhere else in the system? I think the well, it's a it's a it's a it, the whole thing is a very big topic, but that way. it's very difficult to nail down what is the the key risk, there are a number of risks. And I think if I, if I cited uh, two or three of those as, as maybe a, a sort of starter, the, the first thing is that what we clearly have is a lot of debt to refinance. And if you're refinancing debt, you need balance sheet capacity, as I've alluded to. And that balance sheet capacity is very much in the control of, uh, of the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve needs to, uh, and so other central banks, of course, as well, needs to expand their balance sheets to make sure that capacity exists. The second problem is, or the second issue is, that the what we call is the, the polarity of the financial system has kind of reversed in the last 10 or 20 years. And what we mean by that is that essentially who were once borrowers are now lenders, and who were once lenders are now borrowers. And you can see that in the relationship between uh, the banks and what we call uh, corporate institutional cash pools. Now, corporate institutional cash pools are very much a new institutional phenomenon. And what they consist of is corporations such as Microsoft or Google or Amazon or whatever, who have got large cash pools uh, sitting in their treasuries that they don't invest in new capex. They just keep them on effectively on deposit or in the money markets. You've also got uh, forex reserve managers, particularly in Asia, who sit on very large foreign exchange reserves. We're talking here of tens of trillions of dollars, uh, which they basically use as an insurance policy against currency fluctuation. You've got sovereign wealth funds that have grown up. You've had institutional fund managers who are getting lots of cash in from aging populations. And you've got the rise of derivatives, uh, which basically capitalize on volatility markets. That are basically cash based. So these are the new lenders in the in the current system. Yeah, they're they're basically people with cash to invest. Yeah. Now what they require are safe assets, 
that the paradox is that, first of all, they can't put money into banks because banks, on the one hand, don't want the money because they're constrained by liquidity coverage ratios and other constraints that have followed from the financial crisis. And equally, uh, these prospective lenders need some sort of security, um, which they don't get because clearly if you're looking at putting money into a bank, you're only guaranteed up to about 100,000 100, euros in Europe, uh, about 80,000 pounds sterling in the UK, and I think $250,000 in the US. So the limits uh, or the guarantees, if you're investing millions of dollars, are pretty slim. So they need collateral. So what they're doing is they're trying to seek out uh, collateralized instruments they could put their money into. And that really is a repo. Um, so in other words, what they're doing is they're uh, essentially lending against the security of uh, a safe asset, such as a government bond. Now, the problem that the system's got is that, first of all, these pools of money are absolutely huge, so they demand a lot of collateral. And secondly, that, that collateral is not really there, because with austerity policies that um, governments have enacted uh, since the financial crisis to reduce debt, the paradox is that they've actually reduced the supply of these safe assets. So what's come along instead is that the private sector, always innovative, uh, comes up with new instruments. And what's happened is that there's been a surge in corporate debt issuance of potentially flaky quality to substitute for missing government treasury bonds, and that is being used as collateral. Now the problem comes is that when the financial system tanks in a recession, the, uh, the value of this collateral will disappear and make the system a lot more vulnerable. So that's the second risk. And the third risk, uh, if you need a third risk, is basically China. And the problem that China is, that China is effectively a dollarized economy. And whereas China should, in theory, be exporting uh, yuan, i.e. Chinese currency, what they're doing is they're re-exporting dollars and they're putting a lot of strain on the dollar system as a result. So China has a desire to get off the hook of the dollar and that's what a lot of the machinations and whatever that you're seeing in China uh, and the Asian markets at the moment are pretty much all about. So the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, uh, you know, putting the yuan into the uh, SDR, the IMF's currency unit, all these different things are actually trying to make the yuan ultimately independent of the US dollar. Hmm. What about the role of asset managers in the collateralized finance markets? Because they, they the, the volumes of securitized lending that they're doing for their mm -hmm. for the funds that they look after uh, seem to be going up quite substantially does that does that worry you well, it's, it's all, yes it's all part of the same the same issue i mean what you've got is you've got you've got new players who are participating in the markets uh, we've still got this same issue about what's the the true worth of the collateral and the problem is that the central bank's uh, arms are only so long so they can only uh, you know, essentially control uh, a certain amount of the system, uh, and that's really the issue. So they have to, uh, they have to tread very carefully. Last year, the um, outgoing Bank of England's Governor Mark Carney said that the, the liquidity promise of up to thirty trillion dollars worth of mutual fund assets was built in a lie because they promise daily liquidity to the investors in the funds, while they might be investing in less liquid underlying assets, whether it's less liquid areas of the bond market or. You know, extreme cases property, but that we've seen the, but we've even seen it in, in a, you know, an equity uh, mutual fund such as the one run by Neil Woodford. Do you see that as a source of potential risk uh, to the system? 
It is, but I think that's that's much more a risk on the surface, and it's uh, you know it's it's further down the chain from the sort of risks that we're talking about, which are much more fundamental risks. But it, it's in a way part of the same problem, for sure. I mean, there, there's there's no question that uh, in a financial crisis it would be virtually impossible to liquidate these things. Mm. Right. But just to summarise what you've been saying, which is very interesting, the, the, so the, the, since the financial crisis, we've seen a growing dependence on collateral, collateralised finance via the repo markets, and in particular the dollar repo market, because that's the biggest mm-hmm. and most liquid repo market in, in the world. And, and it's the Fed that is standing at the end of the chain and basically adjusting its balance sheet to make sure that we don't ever run out of liquidity. Correct. Uh, and you talk about liquidity as a quantity, uh, sort of quantity of debt that's being refinanced or as opposed to the price of credit and maybe if we go back a, a decade or two, people pay much more in, uh, attention to the price of credit in the form of interest rates. Will we ever get back to a system where we are looking at interest rates again rather than the quantity of money being supplied or are, are we in this environment for the foreseeable future? Well, I think we, I think we, we've always been in that situation. I mean, the, the the volume of funds has always been important, and I think that you know, if if you come back to uh, maybe maybe two observations. I mean, one, if you go back to the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, monetarism was uh, basically very much in vogue then, and people focused very much on the quantity of money. And we're saying not dissimilar things today. You've got to look at the quantity of money. It may not be that important for or as important today as it is for the as it was then for the real economy but it's certainly very important for financial markets uh, and that's really the key difference i think uh, you know it, too much money doesn't create inflation it creates asset price uh, asset price moves or asset price inflation if you like not high street inflation um, and it's not money in terms of high street banks that's important it's money in the wholesale markets that is the the critical distinction that we're that we're making I think as regards you know, the, the interest rate question, why was there a focus on interest rates? I think it comes down to two things. One was simply a cop-out in the sense that money became uh, very difficult to measure accurately because there was a lot of so-called disintermediation out of the banking system, money drifting into wholesale markets uh, around from probably the late 1980s. So uh, a lot of central bankers took the view that because we can't measure it, we're not going to. Uh, which was a bit of a cop-out. And so basically they turned to academics who only really know interest rates from their textbooks. And therefore there was a great focus on looking at, uh, at interest rates. Uh, and that's been, a, I think, a loss to everyone. Um, interest rates may, may matter in a world where the cost of capital is critical, but that's a world where capital expenditure and the sort of the business cycle uh, are really paramount in our economic lives. And I don't think that's the case anymore. Uh, it's much more about debt rollover than new capex. In your recent article in the Financial Times, you point out that previous liquidity-driven markets have all ended in tears, and you mm-hmm. cite the cases of 1974, 1987, the, the Wall Street crash, 2000, the internet bubble, 1989 in Japan. Uh, it sounds as though we're in a pretty similar environment this time. But it, I think it's identical, yes. So, but, but on the basis of your January report, you think that the warning signs are not flashing you know, fully at red at the moment because yeah. uh, partly because investors are not necessarily fully invested or fully positioned uh, in, in, in risk assets. I think that's right. I mean, this is the, you know, the most unloved bull market almost ever. 
And, you know, as they say in markets, the bull markets climb a wall of worry. When that wall of worry stops, when people start to, you know, they're all in and they're believing in it, that's the time to get very concerned. And we haven't reached that point yet. Uh, what's more, if you look at the bond markets, which are often a signal of trouble ahead, bond yields haven't really climbed substantially yet. I think they will, and that's the time to get worried. But I think this could be, you know, the, the denouement could be, you know, could be a year away, could be nine months away. But uh, I don't think it's, um, you know, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I don't think it's going to be two years away. I think it's sometime in that middle ground. But in terms of the scale of the possible correction we're looking at a big one because of the, the the amount of liquidity is that's been well i think it, it, in is, is, is yes i think it, i think it depends i mean there's a, there's a lot of imponderables here i mean one is the what's the reaction of the of the authorities and one of the things we know from last year is the federal reserve is very prepared to uh to move quickly uh if necessary and that may be the case again so that is one thing i think to think about i think that you know there are always lessons learned and there won't be another lehman like event uh, that was a clear error in 2008. Uh, they won't make that error once more. Um, so I think that yeah, things will be different. But I think the scale of the correction, I mean, I think one's talking, you know, I, mean, I, I would be thinking of the order of sort of 20, uh, 25% drop in markets and that, that sort of thing. And that's normally what you would see when bubbles burst. But then on the other hand, you know, um, we could see a significant elevation in asset prices first before that happens. We've, we've got to climb to the heights before we fall off. And central banks have responded to previous drops in markets. I'm talking about the period since the financial crisis, by just uh, unveiling new rounds of QE. And and I think you said in your article that we're going to see QE four, five, six, seven, yeah. I mean indefinitely. So this is, so how does this ever reach a reach a? Uh, what's the end of the story? Is there is there an end of the story? Well, the I mean the end of the story is you you've got to get rid of the debt, and the the debt is the 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 key problem, and. Getting rid of the debt is easier said than done. Now, there could be a debt jubilee. I mean, that's actually what jubilees were formerly, you know, originally all, always about. They're about debt forgiveness. And that could be a way of uh, resolving the problem. I think it's kind of unlikely, but uh, that could be one, one avenue. Uh, another avenue is in trying to inflate um, debt away by creating inflation. And that clearly is an aspiration of many central bankers. Uh, but, you know, even if they got inflation up to maybe 3% again, it would ease the burden on debt over the medium term. Um, so I think th- those are the sort of the likely strategies, because, I mean, like at the end of the day, no one's going to pay this debt back. I mean, that's going to be unrealistic. It's, it's, it's too unproductive for that. And, and um, if, if, you know, for the average observer of markets to, to keep an eye on signs that we might be approaching the top of the cycle, you mentioned bond yields going up as a potential warning sign. Are there, are there any other um, things we should be looking out for? Well, I think the, the things that I would, I would sort of cite as, as, um, as things to worry about would be, uh, I mean, one would be bond yields rising. Um, 3% for the US Treasury market would be a hurdle that would be probably too high for equity markets to, to clear. So I think that, that would be a serious constraint. I think another thing could be a significant pickup in the price of gold. That could be a sign that inflationary problems were starting to escalate uh, beyond central banks' control. Another thing could just be anecdote. I mean, just listening to the sort of euphoria of the market in the press. I mean, once everyone seems to believe that this is, uh, 
you know, an event are happening and everyone's in, in stocks and taxi drivers are talking about, uh, you know, investing in the stock market, that's the time we get very worried. We haven't reached that point yet, but I think we're moving there. And what, what is the um, role for assets that are completely outside the conventional financial system like cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin? Do they have a role to play in the current environment? I think, I think a huge role to play. I mean, I think from, from two dimensions. I mean, one is that uh, if you've got uh, concerns over the integrity of, of monetary assets in the current system, stores of value um, that are outside, things like Bitcoin, I mean, should do extremely well. Uh, from that perspective. I mean, uh, cryptocurrencies are liquidity-driven assets in the same way that gold is. Uh, I think another dimension would be that if you look at the other aspect of, um, of crypto, which is basically being used as an alternative means of payment, you've got, uh, I'm not going to cite Bitcoin in this example, but you know other assets like um, uh, the Ripple currency, uh, XRP, I mean, that, that should be uh, in the longer term, uh, a, a very viable instrument. Because at the end of the day, what you need is currency for transactions. And if you've got uh, a lot of foreign exchange transactions to undertake cross-border, which cross-border payments are clearly picking up, and you want some sort of substitute for the dollar and the dollar gets in scarce supply, um, these alternative currencies and means of settling, they're gonna be invaluable. So I think in the, in the future world, crypto is uh, definitely here to stay. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Money Review Podcast. The world of money is changing fast. We see new stores of value like cryptocurrencies, new ways of paying each other like contactless and digital wallets, and new ways of recording ownership. New Money Review's articles and our podcast can help you stay on top of what's going on. If you'd like to support our work, you can make a one-off donation or a regular payment. Details of how to do so are on our website, newmoneyreview.com, at the bottom right of our homepage.